jewishaudio on kaban.org. This class is presented by Rabbi Mendel Kaplan, spiritual leader at Chabad Flamingo in Thornhill, Ontario. Chapter 4, Mishnah 20 is on page 285, I think. This morning we're going to learn about the virtues of maturity. <laughs> the virtues of maturity. Perceived maturity, true maturity, and as it relates to academic development and Yiddishkeit. The author of this Mishnah is one of the most interesting and colorful characters in the Mishnah, but not for good reasons. The author of the Mishnah, his name is Alisha ben Avuya. Alisha ben Avuya was, for the last few decades of his life, referred to by his companions as Acher. Does anybody know what Acher means? Somebody else. The other one. They wouldn't refer to him by name. And the reason is that Acher, who was an incredible sage, ended up becoming a great heretic. And he dropped all the things he believed in. And instead of preaching and teaching Torah, he preached and taught the opposite. But he was still a great sage. And he still knew a great deal of Torah. Some areas of Torah that he understood nobody else could understand as well. There was only one Chacham. Only one wise man who was able to study Torah from him. His name was Rabbi Meir. Rabbi Meir was a very unique person. His name means illumination. And they said about him that he brought illumination wherever he went. Rabbi Meir, the Gemara says, found a pomegranate. Has anybody ever eaten a pomegranate? Right? That's where most of us eat pomegranates. I think in Israel they eat them more often. But the pomegranate is a difficult thing to eat. Because the fruit is little seeds. You have to kind of get the seeds out and you have to throw out the discard everything in between. So he said about Rabbi Meir, he found the pomegranate. Toichai Ochal, he ate the seeds, the kliposai and the peel, Zorak, he threw away. In other words, Reb Meir had the unique gift of being able to listen to Acher, but was not affected by Acher. So Acher had some strange views. Reb Meir was able to learn Torah from him without it clouding his perspective on sanctity and on the origin of Torah. Usually we wouldn't advise somebody to have a spiritual mentor like that, or to learn Torah from a person like that. Most of the time, a person's character and a person's faith has to match the values that they preach or teach. Has to match the values of the Torah that they're expounding on. Acher was not that kind of person. And the mayor was the only one who was able to glean Torah from him. But the Gemara says only the mayor had that unique gift of taking the fruit and throwing away the shaft. And this teaching is attributed to Elisha ben Avuya. And you will soon see why it is he who issued this teaching, this concept. Elisha ben Avuya Oimer. Elisha ben Avuya says, Halomed Torah Yelad. One who teaches Torah to a small child. Lomahu Dome. What could that be compared to? So very often in Torah, if we want to have a better understanding of something, we usually ask for a metaphor. What's a metaphor? A metaphor is something, a story an idea, an experience that everybody can relate to, that everybody can understand. And if you want to explain a concept that's difficult or distant to somebody who is not initiated, what you would have to do is find something that they are already con convinced or already clear with. And say, you know, you understand X, Y, and Z? So, yeah, that I know. Oh, good, okay. So that is a metaphor for something else. 
For example, you try to explain to a child that Torah is sweet. And that the study of Torah is sweet. And it's enjoyable. And a life of meaning is enjoyable. And the child hasn't the foggiest idea of what you're talking about. Why? Because the child knows fire trucks are sweet. And he likes to play with blocks and Legos. And likes to watch videos. Child doesn't know what you're talking about. Torah is sweet. You put a, a paper in front of him with those strange letters that this is olive, this is beige, and that this is sweet. So what do we do? So our sages said it's a good idea when you start teaching a child olive base to put honey on the letters. And you tell the child, you see the olive? Now taste the olive. And the child licks the olive. And the olive has honey. So the child in his mind now understands he has drawn a correlation between olive base and something that's sweet. You call that brainwashing? Yeah. <laughs> we all brainwash. You want your children to be a mensch? You want them to use a fork and knife? Why can't you be a Zulu? Because you think that's normal. You want your child to have manners. So you tell your child you have to have manners. And most of us are told certain things or are conditioned in a certain way from a very early age. Which doesn't mean we stay by it. <laughs> as long as we get older, so you know, I'm not interested in that stuff my parents pushed on me. Granted. But as a parent, you have the moral obligation to impart the values that you believe in. If you think eating with a fork and knife is an important thing or a nice thing, you're going to try to get your children to use a fork and knife. Will they be a Zulu when they get older? Maybe. Maybe. Maybe they're going to decide that forks and knives are not relevant or not important. Maybe they won't wear them in their pants. I don't, I don't know. Okay, all kinds of funny things can happen to kids. But you nonetheless try to educate your child. So if you as a parent believe that Yiddishkeit is wonderful, and you feel privileged to be a link in the chain that goes back to Mount Sinai, you want your child to continue. Fair enough. So you have to find a metaphor. You have to be wise. You can't just force your values on, I'm using a child as an example, on the child. You have to put it into the child's world. That child exists within every one of us. So whenever somebody wants to push something on us, what do they do? They take something we can relate to already. How many people in this room are accountants? No accountants, sir. You're an accountant. Okay. So you have a good understanding of RSPs and ESPs and QSPs and all that stuff, right? A lot of people don't. So how do they advertise RSPs? They show you a picture of people sitting on the beach. Say, so you want to be there? I want to be there. Take the RSP. I, by the time the RSP cash in, you can't even move anymore. Forget to be 103. How do you get to the beach? That, that's not important. Because most people never ask that question. Right? In marketing, what the person who wants you to buy the product is trying to do is they're going to create an image that you're familiar with or an image that you want or are looking for and say, you want this. Of course I want that. Well, to buy an RSP. Why? 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 Because they're on the same page. It says RSP on the same picture. Oh, okay, no problem. Most, that's, that's the most marketing works. It's a metaphor. So when we use the, the story or picture or something that people are familiar with, all we're trying to do is communicate an idea. Sometimes it's true, sometimes it's not. Marketing is usually not true. Torah is true. So when Torah comes along and says, Halo made Torah yelled, somebody is teaching Torah to small children. It's not a very sophisticated job teaching to small children. There's no real mental challenge, intellectual challenge. It's not a dynamic thing. You have to worry about behavioral issues. Many people don't want to teach children. I'd rather teach adults who are interested in learning. We're sitting together. We want to learn. Finish. Samachaya. You want to sit in a class with 30 kids? And the spitballs and the throwing things and yelling. And who has kayak for that? So Elisha ben Abuya comes along and says, 
You know what it's like when you teach a child? It is like Lidyoik Suva Al Nayor Chodosh. Like fresh ink written on new fresh parchment. Now what happens when you write on fresh parchment? What usually happens? It goes in and it stays. It usually has a lasting impact. As the Bartanura says, that type of writing is mitkayim. It lasts. It's able to endure. So too, the things that small children learn, they don't forget. How many people remember things they learned as a child? It's true. When people get very old and start to lose their mind a little bit, sometimes they can't remember what they had for breakfast. But they remember what they did when they were five years old. And this in a small way is true about life in general. Every single thing that happens to us as a child may leave a lasting imprint. Whereas the things that happen later on, we get a little less sensitive. But I'm saying even like not such old people. Even people like me are not so old yet. (laughs) I'm a little bit old. I'm not so old. So I'm, uh, I'm less sensitive to things now. You know, when you're a child, you learn from things. You're much, much more like a sponge. You sort of soak it all up. And the things that you soak up and things that happen to you have a lasting impact. Certain knowledge you learn as a child stays with you forever. This in the Gemara is called Girsa the Yankasa, which means the learning of an innocent child. So Alisha ben Avuya says... If you're teaching Torah to a child and you're having trouble with discipline or if you're going home and your children are driving you crazy or Baruch Hashem you have Eniklach and they're driving you Meshuggah and you have no Kayach and you want to teach them but it's so difficult and so challenging Elisha ben Avuya says it's a good idea to do it. Don't get frustrated. Why? Because you should know that what you give a child will last with the child forever. And the child will remember so the child will remember what they learned as a small child from their mother or father or Bubby and Zaidi. Why? Because that's the nature of children. Because it's Niyar Chodesh. Niyar Chodesh, it's fresh paper. This is the first thing being written on it. This is the first impressions being made. The Halome Torah Zokim, somebody who teaches Torah to those who are older, Lamohu Dome, what is this like? Ledioik Suva Al Nayar Machuk. To ink which is written, but on parchment that has been erased. Remember, in the old days, parchment was very valuable. So what happened if you had a document that was no longer valid? You didn't need a document, you didn't need it for any specific reason anymore. In the old days, you wouldn't throw it in the garbage. There, what's a piece of paper? So cut down another 5,000 trees. Paper is nothing to us. Maybe it shouldn't be something to us, but it isn't. Parchment, on the other hand, was very valuable. So they would take the parchment and erase it again and again and again. Most of the parchment used in those days was animal parchment. Papyrus was popular in Egypt not in, and in China, not in Israel. But they also used to use this clay. They used like clay pottery. Especially if there would be pottery that broke or whatever, pottery shards would be written on after. But that's a different kind of writing. And certain things have to be written on parchment. For example, anything which is related to holiness, like a Torah, always written on parchment. Right? And in the old days, a get, a divorce, was written on parchment. Interestingly... A divorce document today is not written on parchment. It doesn't have to be. And because it doesn't have to be, a rabbi say we shouldn't. Because other people will say it has to be written on parchment. Because parchment is difficult to come by. Today paper is much easier to produce. 
So in those days, the common metaphor was Diyoik suva al nayar machuk Ink written on an erased parchment And the nature of parchment is you can always erase it Which is some of the times of the Sefer Torah Sometimes a mistake made As long as it's not God's name, we can always erase it You sand it down and you write again But it's never the same The second time you write, you sand down a piece of parchment Sand it, the parchment is thick The second time you write in a piece of parchment It's never the same anymore not clean, it's not white, it's stained, it's just not the same. And it doesn't last as long. The first impression is a lasting impression. And this is a literal example of that. So therefore, Alicia ben Avuya says, although it's much easier and maybe more enjoyable to teach people who are older, there's a certain wonderful thing about teaching people who are younger. Alicia ben Avuya, the Rebbe says, is the master or author of this teacher teaching. Why? Because that which Elisha ben Avuya learned in his youth, he never forgot. Even though he became a heretic. Even though he became a very bad person. And he didn't maintain the values that he had grown up with, but he didn't forget them either. And he was able, even in a very advanced stage, to go back and teach and remember everything that he had learned in his youth. So Elisha saw from himself that the things that he learned in his youth were so powerful and lasting. And that's why he issued this teaching. He says, don't get frustrated of learning with smaller children. On the contrary, there's something beautiful about it. Now the truth is, as I said in the outset this morning, this is about maturity. But maturity is something that has many, many different meanings. In Yiddish there's an expression. Anybody speak Yiddish? Yeah? It says, by Yidin, the Yodin Geyenish Nachem Pasport. Freely translated, for Jews, the years, we don't always count by the passport. You can have somebody that's very old, yet very young, very inexperienced, very foolish. You could have somebody that's very young, yet very wise, very learned. So for a Yid, we don't always look, it's not just a question of how many years a person technically lived. It's also a question of life's experiences. So let me offer you a different way of looking at the mission of Elisha ben Avuya. You can have an opportunity to teach people who are very learned, very scholarly, people who have much experience and much background, or have an opportunity to teach people who don't know very much, who never had a chance to learn. So if you were a scholar, which would you choose? So that's exactly what Elisha Benavui would say. He says, you know what? When you teach people who don't know, don't know, they're fresh. They want to learn. There's something beautiful. You have the opportunity to make a first impression. Whereas when you're teaching people who have learned a lot already, so you may be adding a layer, but you're not making that kind of real contribution. And that, the truth is that this type of idea from Elisha ben Avuya is what I live by. Because I used to teach in a yeshiva. And I had students that were 15, 16, 17, who knew more than a lot of people who are 80 in this show. They're very learned boys. But I found it frustrating. I didn't, first of all, I didn't like the discipline. That goes against this. But more importantly, I didn't feel I was making a huge change, a huge difference, a huge impact. Whereas coming here, Fagi and I feel, will make a real difference. Why? Because people don't necessarily know. So many Yidin, unfortunately, were robbed of our heritage. So many people grew up without the knowledge of Yiddishkeit. So here you're able to make a real impression. People don't know. And when you teach them, their life changes. That's what Elisha ben is saying. That first impression is the most, empower, most powerful. Now this is really an inspiration for every one of us. You know, you meet Jews who know nothing. You get very frustrated with them. 
They don't know anything. What kind of Jew is this? Like, you don't even want to talk to that. Leave me alone. It's too, too hard to explain. Don't say that. When you meet somebody who asks all kinds of crazy questions, but because they really don't know and they're interested, take the time to explain it. Because if you take the time to explain it, you could be the one that makes that first impression. And that first impression is lasting. Whereas when you share an idea with somebody who's already experienced and cultured, it's very easy. It's something that flows, but you haven't made a real change. You haven't made a real contribution to somebody else's life. So that is the first statement in the Mishnah. Rabbi Yaisi Bar Yehuda, Rabbi Yaisi the son of Yehuda, who is called Ishkfar Habavli, the man who came from the Babylonian village, he says, made Torah Minhaktanim. He's going to give us now a different perspective on maturity, Torah study, youth, and the elderly. He says, somebody who learns Torah from very young people, from small children, what would you consider that to be? What metaphor would be apt? Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? Why would you want to learn Torah from a very small child, from a very young person? They have exuberance. Children are excited. They're innocent. So he says, that may not be such a good idea. Because it's doma, it's like, ochel anovim keis, somebody who eats raw grapes, grapes that have not yet reached maturation. Vishose yayin migite, somebody who drinks wine straight out of the vat. Now when wine goes straight out of the vat, what happens to the juice when you press the grapes? And grapes go into a large vat. You have wine. You have juice. You also have refuse. They call it the leads. What has to happen is wine has to settle first. And then they can kind of clean out the leads or clean out the refuse. That stays in the bottom. And they take the wine up from the top. So what would happen if somebody would drink the wine before it settles? That's the question. That's the point we're trying to make. Or what happens when you eat grapes which are not yet fully mature what happens it doesn't taste so good it gives you an outside stomach it's bitter somebody who learns Torah from somebody who has experience what is that like somebody who eats grapes which have matured reach maturation ripe and somebody who drinks wine that is aged what is Yossi telling us here because there's more, to an, there's more to an idea than just the idea. There's the framework, there's the con- context. A- an idea is something that has to properly be absorbed. And only after it's properly absorbed can you really appreciate its deeper message. Ideas are like vehicles. A vehicle is something in, or, or a, a method or a mechanism through which you travel from point A to point B. So we use a vehicle. But it's really not about the car getting where I had to go. It's about me getting where I had to go. The car is merely a vehicle that transports it. Ideas are usually conveyed in forms of metaphors. A metaphor doesn't have to be a story. A metaphor on a very simple level could be one apple plus two apple equals two. One plus two is three or four or five, whatever mathematical concepts that I learned for small children. We use apples 
or other objects that children are familiar with. So it's about apples. Child comes home, what did you learn today? Today I learned about apples. Well, that's very nice. What did you learn? I learned that one apple and another apple makes two apples. That often happens. And the child comes home, what did you learn? Today I learned about bananas. What did you learn? I learned that five bananas and five bananas makes a bunch of ten bananas. So you think, oh, you say, what am I doing with this kid? I mean, he's learning about apples and bananas. Eventually, hopefully, the child realizes that it's not about apples or bananas, but about mathematics. But the truth is that even mathematics uses metaphors. Somebody understands the deeper underpinning of mathematics, understands it's not just a question of numbers. It's not only a question of minuses and pluses. There's a methodology. There's an idea. There's a whole concept here. And the metaphor is merely a way of conveying the concept. This is true with regard to just about anything. There's the essence, the essential message, and the essential message can sometimes be the same in science, the same in mathematics, the same in religion, the same in philosophy. It can all be the same concept. There can be concepts like more is not always better. And more is not always better can be explained in many different ways. But it's an essence. It's an essential concept. That essential concept has to be properly understood and can be properly understood only after the metaphor is digested. So the vehicle has arrived, now it's time to open the door and get out of the vehicle. And that means allowing an idea, the time to ruminate inside. You know, it's interesting. Rumination in English means to think. It means to think about something deeply. You know what else rumination means in English? Chewing the cud. Exactly. Cows are called ruminating animals. Why? Because the cows have three stomachs. The stomachs have enzymes and other ways they break the food down. So the food goes inside the stomach and the stomach gets to work. It cretches and zetzes and does all the kind of things and enzymes. It breaks the food down and then it sends it back for another chewing. And then after the second chewing goes back to the stomach and the same breakdown. And then a third time. And only after the process is repeated three times can the cow actually digest it and grass becomes meat. That's quite a feat to turn grass into meat, right? So it takes time. That's called ruminating. So ruminating, it's very strange, is an, an animal eating, which is not a very logical thing, it's not, no very, nothing very deep in mental activity. He's chewing, chomp, chomp. So they call it chomping and chewing, we call that ruminating, and we call thinking ruminating. How does that work? The answer is, it really is not so far apart. To properly understand an idea, I need to chew it over. Do you people say that? Imagine how ridiculous that sounds. I'm just going to chew an idea. Digest is a metaphor that are used that are used in ancient Hebrew in the Mishnah. Right? You see those set of books called the Milia Bedelia? Yeah. Yeah. She takes everything literally. So to chew an idea, she would put salt and pepper on it and put it in her mouth or something. The point is that ruminating or chewing over an idea is very, very much like allowing food to digest. And therefore, somebody who may be very young and very quick and may have a tremendous grasp and understands ideas like this, but although they can catch an idea or seemingly grasp the idea, the question is, have they ruminated? The question is, have they allowed the wine to settle? The question is, have they allowed the idea the time to mature? Or are the grapes still bitter? Are they not ripe? Does it end up giving you a stomachache? Because of the lack of clarity. So this is an interesting playoff. On one hand, Alicia Benavuya talks about the wonderful learning of a child. But the wonderful learning of a child is only wonderful because he learned that the learning began as a child. But you still have to ruminate. You still have to get old with it. 
If you don't mature with it or develop with it, then you go nowhere. The Gemara says, how did Elisha ben Avuya end up so far, far away? The Gemara has a very interesting story told that he was a very high soul, very lofty neshama. And when his mother was pregnant, she smelled some non-kosher food being cooked. And the medical reality is that if a pregnant woman smells any type of food and develops a very strong craving, if she doesn't have that food, it could cause a miscarriage. So she developed this intense craving and the halacha was she had to eat it. So she ate that food which was not kosher and as a result of that, that somehow soiled Elisha ben Avuya's neshama in vitro when, when his mother was still pregnant. Now, that doesn't mean that Elisha ben Avuya didn't have freedom of choice. Everybody always has freedom of choice. But we have something called propensities. We may be drawn in a certain direction. Somebody may have a natural draw toward holiness or a natural draw in the wrong direction. You know, we have the famous story of another pregnancy, Rivka, the pregnancy of Rivka, Mother Rebecca. And she has like this schizophrenic baby. She walks by the yeshiva of Shane Vaver and she feels punching and kicking and she walked by a house of idolatry and felt punching and kicking. And then she goes and finds out that she has twins. There's Yaakov and Esav. Jacob has a, is drawn to holiness and Esav is drawn to the opposite and that's why this whole struggle is going over there. And, and he calms her down and says, Shnei goyim bevitnes. You have two nations in your stomach. So the question is, what does that mean? Esav didn't have freedom of choice? And he was destined to be wicked? He couldn't have changed that? The answer is he could have. Not only could he have changed it, but had he changed it, he would have by far exceeded Yaakov. And that's why Yitzchak, whose profession was well digging, always tried to work with Esav. Yitzchak's profession was finding water where everybody else gave up. He was all about unearthing potential. And he was very disciplined and very focused. And he would just keep digging away until he would get down to the reservoir. Until he would get down to the bottom. And he looked at Esav and he saw that spiritually Esav had unbelievable powers. And he did. And therefore Yitzhak spent his life trying to access the potential of Esav. Now Rivka was much more pragmatic. And she understood, and generally women understand things better, they have a better clarity of things. She understood that Esav would never ever be able to be redeemed. She saw it was too, it was too, he was too far gone. He committed a homicide when he was 15 years old already. He was too far gone. And she understood the only way that Esau would ever be rectified was through Yaakov. And that's, by the way, this mystical story of the Gullus we are now. We are the descendants of Jacob. We struggle with the descendants of Edom or Esau. And this struggle between Edom and Yaakov, or the Jewish people and the secular world, that struggle is all about ultimately bringing Mashiach. And when Mashiach comes, we are going to elevate the sparks of holiness that were lost in Esav. So Esav will come home someday, where the sparks of holiness that are representation of Esav, they will be redeemed. Only through Yaakov. So Rivka understood that Yaakov needed to have the blessings, because it was Yaakov who would someday save Esav. Although it would take a long time. And Yitzhak was too focused. Yitzhak was convinced that he would be able to get to the Esav, but she wasn't. But Esau still had the possibility. He still could have. And interestingly speaking, there's a very, very um, strange, let's say, a, a story in the Bible doesn't have a happy ending. Most of the stories have happy endings, especially in the book of Genesis. It almost always works out. With one cardinal exception. And that's the story of Dina. Dina, the daughter of Jacob. Right? She's brutally raped and, and uh, her brothers end up massacring her city. And what happens to Dina, Nebuch? She... She never really develops. She just, you know, she, it's not a happy story. So why did this happen? 
So very interestingly, we're told, and this may sound strange to you today, but in those days this was common practice, that it was not unheard of for an uncle to marry his niece. It wasn't unheard of. And Yaakov was afraid that Esau would take a look at Dina and he would want to marry her. Because Dina had a very powerful personality. And Dina actually had the ability to turn Esau around. The word Dina comes from the word Din, or judgment. And Dina has this incredible spirituality, this incredible ability to really take somebody like Esau apart and turn him around. And Yaakov was thinking more about himself, about protecting his daughter, than thinking about maybe the greater good of humankind. And if Dina would agree, so don't be so selfish. If that's what she wants, do what your child wants. But Yaakov wasn't ready to do that, so he hid Dina. And he prevented Esau from seeing her. And as a result, much of the suffering and misfortune that has happened over the last few thousand years that could have been prevented was not prevented. And that's how we understand the story of Dina and Yaakov and everything that happened with Shem and so on and so forth. Now, this is, we're talking about a very deep thing and a very wide-ranging thing. We're just talking about this at the tip of the iceberg. So, nothing is to be taken in extreme literal terms as reward, punishment, and so on and so forth. Nothing's black and white. The more you study Torah, the more you find how many areas are gray. <laughs> Halacha is black and white most of the time. But the, a lot of these areas are, there's a great deal of deep thought and deep concepts that are buried within. But I'm just sharing with you a sliver. Just a little bit of a panorama so you understand that there are concepts of people who come from a very high place and they fall to a very low place. And it's not because they're intrinsically bad, only because they have a propensity in a certain direction. But propensity in a certain direction doesn't mean that they are doomed. On the contrary, it means they have the ability to elevate. Well, for example, we believe that sometimes the highest souls will come through converts. Why? Why should a highest soul come through a convert? Because the idea of a convert is holiness that got lost outside of the Jewish people. And that's a, a, a struggle and a challenge to bring that holiness back in. And once that holiness is retrieved, so then the greatest things can happen. The greatest thing of all is the coming of Mashiach. Mashiach is a Sion, a descendant of King David. And King David is a great grandson of Ruth. Who was Ruth? A convert. A convert from the Moabite nation. Now the Moabites originate from the family of Abraham. They come from Lot, Abraham Avinu's brother. And how did the Moabites come about? The Moabite nation came about when God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So at that time, there was one man who escaped. His name was... Who escaped? Lot. Lot. And who did Lot escape with? His wife and daughters. But his wife got stuck somewhere in Mount Sodom. And it's very interesting. When you drive along Mount Sodom, they point out Lot's wife. I don't know. I'm not convinced it's Lot's wife. Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. <laughs> it, it does look like a woman. I have to admit. It looks like a woman who's you know, looking down at the panorama of the Dead Sea, which apparently at one time was... A beautiful, fertile valley. Whether that is Lot's wife, I don't know. Now, why did I say I don't know? Because we also visited in Israel something called the Stalactite Cave. And they show you a praying Moses, and they show you a davening Rabbi Kiva, you know, the stone formations look a certain way. Oh, oh, you see that eagle there? Yeah, it's an eagle, come on. Okay. <laughs> so just because somebody looks a certain way doesn't mean, but whether we see Lot's wife or don't see Lot's wife, Lot's wife got lost. She didn't make it. And Lot escapes with his two daughters and his two daughters were convinced that the whole world was destroyed this is another great flood but they had that tradition they knew from their grandparents that the world had one, one time been destroyed so the two daughters said what are we going to do over here 
the world is destroyed, we're, we're the last girls, after that is the last man, we got to procreate. And so they find old wine over there, and they get the father drunk, and they do something that's not so nice. And as a result, they both got pregnant. One nation is called Moab, one nation is called Ammon. Moab was the elder daughter. She said, Moab, what does Moab mean? Meav, for my dad. Sick. Incest. Terrible. And that was the grandfather of the nation of Moab. And the princess, princess of the Moabite nation was a woman named Ruth. And Ruth turns out to become a convert. And she becomes the grandmother of David and Melah. So you say, what's going on over here? King David has to come from such a sordid background. Why? Why does it have to be that way? To come from a convert, to come from Rus, who comes from Moab, who comes from Lot? The answer is that sometimes in strange situations, holy souls or great spiritual energy is invested. And that's the challenge. The challenge is to elevate it. The challenge is to turn it around. So for example, somebody who's very wicked or very evil, if they would properly be properly sublimated or redirected, they could probably do a great deal of good. Right? I mean, let's use the most extreme example. Don't shoot me. Imagine if somebody could have rehabilitated Hitler. He was a very charismatic, very powerful person. Imagine how much good a person like that could have done. Scary to think. It wasn't meant to be. It didn't happen. The point I'm trying to make is that wherever there is extreme, it can be extreme bad or extreme good. It could work one way or the other. So when we're talking about a spark of holiness that gets lost, Elisha ben Avuya had a very high neshama. And the fact that he had such a high neshama meant that when his mother ate, actually he could soil his neshama. Only because he had such a high neshama. Whereas for most neshamas, it wouldn't have made a difference. The story is told about Moshe Rabbeinu. You know, he was a baby. And he was found in the marshes. So, and who happened to find him? Another princess. The daughter of Pharaoh. Who named him Moshe? The daughter of Pharaoh. That's the name we refer to him by. Same concept. So Moshe, Batya takes Moshe home and she gets him a wet nurse. One wet nurse, another wet nurse. Moshe refuses to nurse him anybody. Until finally a little girl named Miriam comes along and says, You know, I notice you have this baby crying. It looks maybe Jewish to me. I get maybe a Jewish, a Jewish wet nurse. And Batya is so frustrated with this baby he won't eat. She says, Please do anything you can. Takes Moshe straight home to his mom and everything's fine. So Moshe's mother actually raised him. Right? Under the tutelage of Pharaoh. It's like the greatest oxymoron. The greatest revenge. Pharaoh who's trying to kill the redeemer of the Jewish people is busy paying his parents to raise Moshe. She was paying Moshe's mother to, to raise him. So the Gemara says, why didn't Moshe nurse him anybody? What's, well, why was it such an emphasis? And the Gemara says that Moshe Rabbeinu, who was later going to become the prophet and the Torah would be given, could not nurse from a Gentile woman. Which means, in the times of the Mishnah, it was very common. Wet nurses was a very common profession those days. And it wasn't a big deal. Jewish wet nurse, non-Jewish, what's the difference? It didn't make a difference. For Moshe Rabbeinu, for a very high soul, such a neshama, something like that can make a difference. An example. A diamond that is exceptionally valuable. One of those hundred thousand diamonds you read about in the newspaper. You know, the kind the actors and actresses wear. So those diamonds, if it has the slightest imperfection, what happens? Flawed, no good, forget it, out of the market. Now that same diamond, if it would not have been a hundred thousand dollar diamond, it would have been that kind of diamonds we know. Five thousand dollar diamonds, ten thousand dollar diamonds, it has the same flaw. Would it be out of the market? 
Now, maybe go down a thousand dollars, maybe five hundred dollars. Depends on the quality. A hundred dollar chip would go down two dollars. Doesn't make a difference. So when something is at a very high level, small things can make a difference. On a shama like Elisha ben Avuya's, something like his mother eating non-kosher meat, when Elisha ben Avuya is still in vitro, still a fetus, can make a difference for Elisha ben Avuya. For an ordinary neshama, no, it won't make such a difference. But it does make some difference. You know that we have a custom called kaparot? Erev Yom Kippur? Don't, don't tell your neighbors I think you're crazy but you take a chicken we do it in the dead of the night nobody can see us no? <laughs> your mommy you could do it also in Chabad Gate not so far away they don't shech the chickens over here they send them downtown so I'm telling you they don't shech them they don't shech them over here I stopped eating chicken as a little boy I saw that there's no more chicken for I didn't eat chicken for 18 years after that you know when I started eating chicken again when I was learning to be a rabbi I went to the slaughterhouse then I saw them do bulls so I was really freaked out so I said to myself okay one of two things is happening either I'm becoming vegetarian or I gotta start eating chicken <laughs> and vegetarian didn't sound like fun so I started eating chicken after that but, but the point I make you don't have to see the chicken being slaughtered now, right down here at the block down at Chabad Gate Erev Yom Kippur early morning when it's still dark outside take a chicken and you say Zech Alifasi Zech Kaparasi right this is instead of me Chicken will go to be slaughtered and its flesh, its meat will be given to poor people. And you will go on to live a happy, peaceful life. You have a good year. So we have this idea called kaparis. So what happens when a woman is pregnant? How many chickens does she use? Two. Why do you say two? Two nishamas. How's about if I tell you three? Why, why three? Because a male chooses, chicken uses a male. And a woman, a man uses a male chicken. A woman uses a female chicken. Most people, for some reason, I don't know, but in observant circles, most people don't bother finding out what the sex of a baby is. Whatever it is that Hashem gives, we don't like to prepare. We prepare by giving tzedakah, by davening, asking for a healthy child. Whatever it is, it is not. We'll worry about it later. So since we're not decorating nurseries before, what difference will it make for us to know? We don't want to call them moho before. We don't want to do any of that stuff. Because we consider it to be a bad omen to make preparations before. So therefore, most of them don't know what the sex of the baby is. So you have the mother takes a hen, and then we have a rooster and a hen for whatever is possible for the baby. Now somebody said, that seems a little excessive. This baby is not yet born. Already you're having kapotas from? What's kapotas? What do you want from the poor thing? The baby had no choice. It never could have made the bad choice if it wanted to. And when a baby is born, it could make a bad choice. So the answer is that kapara doesn't only mean atonement as in forgiveness. But kapara in Hebrew means to wipe away, to cleanse. And we believe that the effects of sin are immediate. And that if somebody absorbs something which is improper or non-kosher, it makes a difference. So what do you do with that? You have to cleanse it away. And, and an observance like kapara can help cleanse it. So in case the mom makes something that she shouldn't have eaten... There would be an effect on the child as well. In order for the child to be born with a clean slate or cleansed, that's what we do kaparis. Sounds crazy? No? Lots of things sound crazy. There's a lot of things we don't really see, only we learn about, we believe in them, and this is clearly in the realm of faith. I'm not going to tell you it's empirical. I'm sorry? Yeah, it's past time. Like I said, that's what we believe. So anyway, going back to Elisha ben Avuya, that was, according to the Gemara, his earliest downfall. That was his problem. What this should do for us is make us aware of the importance of pregnancy. And very interestingly, modern medicine is only today beginning to recognize the value 
of what happens during pregnancy. Only a few decades ago, pregnant women used to smoke and drink, thought nothing of it. Only a few short decades ago, it was revealed that smoking and drinking and taking drugs and other types of behavior could actually hurt the child, could stunt the child. And today they say that if you talk to the baby, you talk to the fetus, the fetus recognizes voices, and the children to whom Beethoven is played have a propensity for classical music. They did studies on this. We always said that. The Gemara maintained this for thousands of years. That that which happens in the environment of where the fetus is growing makes a difference. So therefore, we should be careful. We should be careful, especially when somebody's pregnant. So whether it's somebody you know is pregnant, you should encourage them to be a little more Yiddish, a little more Jewish during that time. To give extra tzedakah, to daven a little more, to try to create an environment, to eat kosher, an environment which is better for the baby. So this is the teaching of Elisha ben Avuya. This is why he went wrong. The emphasis here is on the great value of learning with young or inexperienced people. And Rabbi Yeshi's comeback is, yeah, it's very nice to teach young or inexperienced individuals, but don't learn from them. Because learning from them says it's, it's true. You made that first impression, that's a lasting impression. But give time for the impression to sink in. Allow for the idea to mature. And only after the idea is mature, then will you be able to properly benefit from it. This is not a very popular thing today. Today, anybody who is a little less spry, a little less young, is not jumping off the walls, they're ready to you know, throw them out. Next. Next, I want young blood. Torah says, don't run for young blood so fast. Leadership is something that comes with sagacity very often. And for a person to be forced into retirement, according to Torah, is criminal. It's wrong. Yes, it's true, sometimes people get old and they have to slow down. It's true that some people are not capable. Actually not capable. But to make it as a carte blanche rule, somebody is 65 kick him out the door, fire the teacher. On the contrary, this could be the best years. Yes, the teacher may not be jumping up and down and full of energy, but they have a wisdom that can compensate for the lack of energy because the ideas have become a part of them. They have ruminated for so many years that it is it's who they are. And most things in the world, the Gemara says, are chachma ve'enim melacha. It's not brute strength. It's wisdom. You have to know how to bend something. You have to know how to deal with the situation. To deal with it head-on, fist-to-fist, is not always the most effective. Now, Reb Meir says that it's important not to get too focused on the age of who you're learning from. So Reb Meir, remember, is the disciple of Elisha ben Avuya. So this mission is like an interesting parlay. It's like a back and forth. Elisha ben Avuya gives his teaching about the wonderful virtue of teaching people very young and inexperienced. Reb Yeshi Bar Yehuda comes back and says, hey, one second, don't get carried away. It's very nice to teach maybe people like that, but don't learn from them. Reb Meir is a moderating force. Reb Meir, he comes to defend his teacher, Elisha ben Avuya, and he says, be careful about who you dismiss. Al tistakel bekankan. Don't look at the bottle. Don't look at the packaging. Find out what's inside. Yesh kankan. Chodosh. You have sometimes a spanking new bottle, very shiny, no experience. Mola yoshan. And it could be full of very old wine. And you have yoshan, a very old beat up bottle. So, oh, this must be an antique. This must be some wonderfully expensive wine because the bottle looks like it survived the First World War. And you find out this full of grape juice. Or less, afilu chadash, aimbai. There could be nothing in it. There are some people that are all talk, all image. And you start prodding a little, 
There's nothing there. Nobody home. So yes, sometimes it's very exciting. You want to study Torah from somebody who's very sagacious, you know, look like Moses with a long white beard. And they're going to have a shmat over their head and say, wow, this is like a Kabbalist. This is unbelievable, you know. We must be finding out the secrets of the universe. And you find out that the person doesn't know an Allah from a base. That was in Israel. So a very funny thing. There was a, a man who became observant very later years in life. And he can't even daven. But he has a long white beard. Because what is beard? He has a long white beard. He looks like a big sage. And somebody came over and was asking him a question in Hebrew. And he's like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. I speak English. <laughs> and I was like, Baffolic. This rabbi doesn't speak Hebrew. What? <laughs> don't always judge a book by its cover. You heard that expression? That comes from the Mishnah. Alta Stako Bakanka. So the mayor says, he argues on the BAC, about the Behuda. He says that sometimes you could have somebody who may be very young externally. However, the taste, he says, or the understanding, can be very wise. can be like somebody who's very old, and you have somebody who's very old, and yet, no great chachma, nothing to listen to. There's a beautiful story which is told about an older chassid that was once approached by a group of young chassidim, and they said, teach us Torah, tell us something inspirational. And he said, what are you asking me to teach you for? He said, but because you're old. Because you're so old, you must know things that, that uh, some secrets that we don't know. He says, you think just because I'm older than he's not smart? So they said, yes. He says, that's not so simple. He pointed out to them, he actually was very wise and very modest, but he points out to them, they were walking along in the shtetl, there was a group of sheep grazing. Some of the sheep were very frisky, follicky sheep, jumping all over the place. And some of the sheep were walking much more sedate, much slower. He says, you see the difference between the sheep? Some of the sheep and the goats are jumping up and down. The other animals are walking very stately and very dignified. He says, you think that the dignified looking sheep are any smarter? You think their brain has enlarged in the last uh, 10 years, 20 years? He says, no. He says, you know what got bigger? He says, the backside got bigger. They can't jump anymore. He says, doesn't have, pardon my French, doesn't have a bigger head. He says, he has a bigger tuchus. He says, that's why he's not running around. He says, what do you want from me? He says, just because I'm old, you think I have wisdom? <laughs> the dignified sheep is necessarily wiser. He's a behemoth. He always was a behemoth. He's a behemoth now. He says, life a behemoth, life a behemoth. But do you think a, a behemoth becomes a person just because they get old? No. A person who's very, very wise when they're young gets even wiser when they're old. A person who's very stupid stays very stupid. Some things are intrinsic. They don't necessarily change. So the mayor says, don't be so quick. Don't be so jump to the gun and say, no, I only want to study. They got to be 90 plus. That's what I'm studying. Otherwise, forget about it. I can't study everybody immature. Or 80 men, but that's it. Nobody's for sure. You have people that are not too intelligent. They could be very old. People that are very intelligent, very young. It's not necessarily a given. And therefore, Elisha ben Avuya's statement of teaching the young or of the inexperienced, they're making that first impression and that it is lasting. The mayor agrees with that. But with Rabbi Yaisi, who argues on Elisha, and who throws in kind of this monkey wrench, he douses you with cold water, says, don't get too excited about the young, the young ones. You know, come on, stay away from them. It's, it's, it's sour grapes. It's not, not something you want to go for. But Mary says it's not so simple. There's no rule like that. In, in the age that we live in, packaging is everything. If the package looks nice, people buy it. The product? Nobody remembers the product. Everything is dispensable. People forgot what they bought yesterday, today. It's, it's so quick, such a turnover. It's not even an issue anymore. Unfortunately, in our day and age, it all depends on how you market something. It depends on how you package it. If it's packaged well, it sells. Bad product, good marketing, millionaire. 
excellent product, bad marketing, bankruptcy. That's the reality. Is that a good thing? Torah says not. Torah says that's because we have become externally minded, superficial people. Instead of looking for the truth, instead of looking for something deeper, people are just looking for something which is quick and easy. They're looking for something which is appealing. Everybody is looking for exterior, you know, skin deep appeal. But that doesn't last. And so, the mayor says that there's great danger. He senses great danger in Rebiosi's words. Rebiosi has this emphasis on appearance, on image. He says, slow down with the image. Appearance is not everything. It really is important to what's inside rather than what's on the outside. On one occasion when the Rebbe taught this Mishnah, he said a really, really interesting thing. This is 1983. And the Rebbe has already for 15 years been talking about mitzvah campaigns. About going out and turning the world over. Being able to come over to a Yid and say, Good morning, how are you? Did you put on film today? Have you lit Shabbos candles last week? Here's a pair of Shabbos candles. Come, let's put on film. Did you give tzedakah today? Have you learned a little Torah recently? To spread this idea of mitzvahs. So the Rebbe said that sometimes he finds young people who maybe are inexperienced and maybe they don't have, didn't learn in the big fancy yeshivas and don't come from the shtetl and therefore the older Hasidim laugh at them and, and, and mock them and don't respect them. But he says the mali, the mali yashim. They go out there and they're making a difference. They're full of content. As other people who keep talking about, oh, I'm from the shtetl and I come from this person and that zizayda and that baba, and what are they doing? Nothing. It's a nice bottle. It looks beautiful. It sits on the shelf, but it's not ready to go out there. So the idea is that appearance is not everything. And then some of you think, what? I'm going to go teach people Torah? I don't look the part. How can I dress a certain way, or live a certain way, and I'm going to tell somebody about Torah and mitzvahs? That's a good job for the rabbitson. Good job for the rabbi. I'm not, I don't look it. I don't feel it. So the Mishnah says, it doesn't matter what you look like or what you feel like. What do you have? That's the question. You got the goods? Do you know something somebody else doesn't know? Can you share something that somebody else doesn't have? Then go ahead. It's not about the image. It's not about the superficiality of it. And other people get very caught up, you know, with the externalities. The superficials. They want to look the part. Drives me crazy. <laughs> you do a few mitzvahs, I want to look the part. Rabbi, where did I get one of those black hats? Yeah. Got a cowboy star, you have a black hat. No, I want to wear a black hat. Well, a black hat, find yourself a new show. It's ridiculous. What are you wearing a black hat for? So it's bad enough I'm stuck with one. What are you wearing a black hat for? <laughs> I don't know. That's something the girls brought up. It's the community wisdom. I could be different. I'm a rabbi. I looked apart. It's not about the black hat though. Learn Torah. Be a vibrant yid. Have some, uh, make a real contribution. Black hat? Is that what it's about? So you ask me, where do I care? What's wrong with the black hat? What's wrong is that we're living in this superficial society. In this cosmetic world. Where everybody wants to just look the part. So, oh, I got my black hat. I'm saved, man. I'm, I'm like so holy now. What, what holy? Why? Because you're a behemoth with a black hat. What does it mean? It means nothing. I perceive a very real danger in externalities. And people get caught up in externalities that I'm going to look a certain way externally. Then you know what? You get caught up with exter- externals and you miss, you miss the point. And the emphasis has to be on changing us from the inside out. Now, externalities are also a fine thing eventually. When you're all clean on the inside, it should eventually come out on the outside too. No problem, fine. Gesundheit. hate. But, but it's got to go from, from inside out. A person has to internalize Torah mitzvahs. A person has to be malay yashan. Full of aged wine. Regardless of what they look like. Regardless of appearance's sake. 
Now, certain appearance is a different thing. Question of a shokhadar, a chayamaka is not a bad thing. Let's wear a kippah, wonderful. You want to dress modestly, wonderful. You should dress modestly. It's a good thing. These are shokhadar things. Those are Jewish law. That, I don't call that externalities. It's not an external trapping. But being involved in just external things, just looking a certain way or, or acting a certain way because that's what everybody else is doing, you're not necessarily doing yourself a favor. From all the Hasidim in the world, the only Hasidim who don't have this emphasis on dress is Chabad. Chabad Labavish Hasidim never, we don't have any special jackets. It's a regular suit I'm wearing. We don't wear special hats. It's a regular borsalino. It's the nicest hat they make, so I wear it. I have to wear a hat, I wear a nice one. But there's no special kind of hat. And we don't have a, there's nothing special, there's nothing holy or Jewish about the garments that we wear. Even on Shabbos, the long garment I wear is simply the last time that long garments were in style, that was what they were. It's called the Prince Albert. It's the old tuxedo. That's, that's all it is. And Shabbos, to wear a longer, a longer dress, because longer dress has a dignified look to it, and we should honor the Shabbos with a dignified dress. So, so I wear a long garment. The long... <laughs> no, but there are many Hasidim who do have distinctly Jewish dress. The fur hat, the shrimal, is a Jewish, is a Jewish dress. And the bekesha with those fancy silk kaftans, yes, it is, it is actually a, it's a Jewish dress only. So what's wrong with it? What's wrong with it was that the philosophy of Chabad is you have to be a Hasid inside. It's not about outside. And there's a danger in, in externalities. Once we get too caught up in external trappings, so Hasidus becomes the jacket you wear, the song you sing, the hat that's on your head, and then that's where Hasidus ends. And if you're really with Hasid, you have different socks also. Long white socks, then mamish, then you're like a, Then you climb Mount Everest. So, so Chabad says, you know, it's not really about the, the, the shoes or the jacket or the pants. Dress conservatively. We believe in dressing conservatively, dressing, dressing uh, modestly. You know, but, but that, that's about it. There's emphasis. The emphasis is not on those external superficial things. There is many ramifications. The point for us is, leaving this Mishnah, is that maturity is a wonderful thing. But maturity is not what's on the outside. And likewise, somebody who maybe looks older, but feels young at heart, is young at heart. doesn't matter what you look like. It's not about the externality. It's not about superficials. You know who's old? Whoever thinks they're old. The Mishnah, whoever thinks they're old. The Mishnah and the Dara asks a question. What if somebody makes a vow? And the vow has something to do with old. How do you define legally old? So you know what's called old? Somebody who people call them old, and they don't say, I'm not old. They don't protest. Once you agree you're old, then you're old. But as long as a person feels young and vibrant, they can make a difference regardless of superficials, a person can always be young and vibrant and achieve great things, and that is the lasting legacy of Rabbi Meir.